Transformation and optimism are not typically words used in conversations tied to the justice system where we spend $25 million a day in the U.S. to detain young people. On today's show, youth incarceration and education policy and how we get rid of harmful systems for young people. Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Bishop. This is Our Children Can't Wait, a podcast about the systems and structures that keep our kids from flourishing. Our Children Can't Wait is also a book from Teachers College Press, available for purchase from Amazon. And if you're new to the Our Children Can't Wait podcast, please follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Our team at UCLA did a study on education in the juvenile court schools in Los Angeles. And according to California law, like a lot of other states, the state must provide a public education for juveniles who are incarcerated in facilities run by county probation departments. These schools take on different shapes, but they often are located in juvenile halls, juvenile homes, day centers, ranches, camps, and regional youth education facilities. I'll never forget a few summers ago reading one of the Magic School Bus books to my four-year-old son in the morning at our house. And later that day at a juvenile camp, seeing a brilliant 16-year-old black student watching the cartoon version of that same book after finishing his online coursework. The paradox to me in that moment was both unsettling and infuriating the more I got to know that student. For me, it became abundantly clear that our priorities, like locking up talented kids and not setting them up for success, are totally out of whack. Professor Ron Astor talked about our state of confusion recently on an episode on school and community safety. I think we're in a state of confusion in our country, not just politically, not just on this, but actually on what the purpose of schools are supposed to be. Rarely do we think about the purpose of education and settings like the juvenile halls or juvenile camps, but we should. And our goal, as Dr. Angela James of UCLA explains, should be more than educating students who have been in and out of the justice system. The goal should be transformation. Here's contributing author of Our Children Can't Wait and director of research for the Center for the Transformation of Schools at UCLA, Dr. Angela James. My name is Dr. Angela James, and I am research director for the Center for Transformation of Schools. I'm also a sociologist, a demographer, a mother, a friend, a community member, and an activist. She is all of those things, I, I can attest. So Angela, this is something we ask every guest and every contributing author for Our Children Can't Wait. How did your upbringing shape your interests as a scholar today, looking at the intersection of the education system and the justice system? My upbringing was pivotal. I'm a first-generation college student. One of the ways that I made that leap is through education. So for me, uh, my experience with schooling and fantastic teachers was a pivotal 
component of how I viewed myself as a learner. Mm. So the way in which school amplified what I was learning uh, at home mm. uh, and the way in which that reflected a, a, a picture of myself that I would carry forward and I still have as a person who's interested and curious and learning over all the other things that I may have been, children are children, right? Right. But the way that uh, home and school interacted in my life is why I'm here. My community was one that had some issues and concerns. People were poor. Violence wasn't necessarily uncommon. But it was a community, and the school was a linchpin. I happened to have lived right across the street from my school. So the way that I see schools and communities is mm. fundamentally shaped by the community that I grew up in and in my experiences. Where did you grow up, Angela? I grew up in Gardena, California, mm. just outside of Los Angeles, about 10 miles away from Los Angeles. And it was a very working class community. Many of uh, the folks in my community worked in the aerospace industry very close by, mm. including my dad, who was a machinist in the aerospace industry. When you think about the chapter 15 of the book, you start with a very personal story. Yes, yes. What spiked your interest in the intersection of education and the justice system? So the personal story I started with is that of a young man whom my sister taught and loved and cared for and who mm. was very important to her and whose story she shared with me and I shared with the audience in that chapter. What sparked my interest was certainly the experience with that young man, but also the experience of a number of young people in my community. So I had become involved, very involved in juvenile justice advocacy, which is one of the reasons my sister called me when this happened to her student. Uh, I'd been working with Youth Justice Coalition. Mm -hmm. We had been working together on issues around school policing, mm -hmm. but I, I grew very, very interested in the experience of these young people, many of whom had been in some of the youth camps and facilities, mm -hmm. and just learning with them was part of what got me interested in what was happening in these facilities. Let's backtrack a little bit. Tell us a story that, that you shared in the chapter for folks who are trying to make sense. I shared a story in the chapter about a young man who had been my teacher sister's student as a second grader. And that young man was just brilliant, wrote poetry, carried a little book with him everywhere. And my sister was very excited about him as a student because he was so brilliant and so eloquent. He also was very troubled and had very difficult parental circumstances. His, his mother struggled with substance abuse and he lived with his father and siblings, his father who worked quite a bit, and he had very little supervision in the off hours. Uh, it certainly had gotten caught up in a lot of, you know, interesting experiences and at a certain point gotten arrested. 
and was in a juvenile facility. And so following that story of this brilliant second grader Mm. who maintained contact with his teacher, my sister, enough so that, you know, when in trouble, that's one of the calls that were made. So it just, the example taught me so much about the pivotal importance of teachers in -hmm. communities, the experience of young people in fragile circumstances, Mm. and I can go on and on, but one of the things that have happened even since the publication of Mm. that article is that that young man has emerged and is now working as an advocate. Oh, wow. For other young people. Mm. I am so excited to to report that because, you know, the chapter's vignette kind of ends on a sad note. He had been incarcerated as an adult. Mm. And so I'm really, really happy to say that he's emerged and is making the kind of contribution that I think his second grade teacher knew he could make. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I remain encouraged by the potential of young people at whatever stage in their life and whatever circumstances they find themselves to have transformation. That is a great story. It sounds like the story has not ended for that young man. Absolutely. And none of our stories have ended. And so I think it's really instructive. We can always make transformations in our lives individually and and culturally. Mm -hmm. One of the, the most important parts of the emergence of that young man is that part of what is transforming him now is his efforts on behalf of other young people like himself. And Absolutely. so the, the the kind of way in which people become engaged that expands from themselves to community, I think is one of the most ex- exciting part of that story. And I think what makes me very hopeful about this work So, Dr. James, why do we detain young people? That is a great question. I think part of the reason is that we are afraid and that we don't see young people as ours. Mm. I think that we see them as someone else's. And so we are afraid of young people. We're Mm -hmm. afraid that they're going to harm us. Uh, We're afraid that they're going to harm someone else. Um, Mm -hmm. and, And we're not afraid of all young people. We're afraid of black and brown young people. You know, when I go to the facilities in my work, that's who I see, you know. it, It is very, very rare I enter a facility and see anyone else. They're predominantly black and brown. They're 100% from poverty backgrounds. And we're afraid of them. And we feel them as other. They are them, not our children, right? And so our children may need help. Mm-hmm. those children we need help from. Mm. So I think that that is it's that kind of thing that really drives the current circumstances. But there are other options. And I think that part of the reason we do what we do with young people is that we are not aware that it was different even 50 years earlier. Mm. There are other examples around the globe of what we could do with young people. I think that's really a a big reason why. So help us think big picture. What can we be doing differently? I think sometimes we're we're so accepting of the way things are. 
We absolutely have to see education as an important lever that we can pull at any stage in this process. So it's an important lever when children are in schools that are troubled and under-resourced and so forth and so on. It is an important lever when children have been arrested Mm -hmm. and we consider what we do to help them make a different kind of transition. It is always remarkable to me that education, which we understand as critical to helping young people make the transition between childhood, adolescence to a successful adult, is often not considered as pivotal as we consider what to do in juvenile justice circumstances. Mm. So I think that we have to begin to prioritize education over all else. Mm. We have to make that the priority. So you're saying as a top priority, as a prevention strategy, as a As a prevention strategy, as a treatment strategy, you know, we have to be concerned that the young people that we find in juvenile justice contexts are not only predominantly black and brown, but also most often suffer from various learning and other emotional disabilities. Right. That should be chilling to all of us. And so it's as though we have decided that, you know, there are these children with high needs and instead of addressing their needs, we're just going to put them away somewhere. Mm. We're just going to hide them away somewhere so they don't bring down our test scores so that they don't make us feel unsafe so that they, 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 they. Instead, we can make different choices about prioritizing their education, about figuring out what works for them to engage them and to help them make this transition successfully. And so I think, you know, prioritizing education and figuring out what is necessary for that young person to help them navigate what are often very treacherous waters. Coming up after the break, what if we made fundamentally different choices about kids who are struggling? or who have been in the foster care system, or even homeless? What if we chose systems of care and not systems of punishment? Education is critical um, to facilitating individual and social transformation. We can do this. We can make different choices and our children can be nourished and should be nourished instead of punished and discarded. Our Children Can't Wait is the book I wrote. I made this podcast to further the conversation with you. Maybe you're an administrator. Maybe a parent. Maybe a teacher. Maybe you make policy at the state level or in Congress. Or maybe you just want to learn more about this topic. So we can keep the conversation going. Please email me at joe at ourchildrencantwait.com. I'd love to hear from you. Our Children Can't Wait is a podcast sponsored by the Center for the Transformation of Schools at UCLA. And the book is published by Teachers College Press. Funding for today's show comes from the Stewart Foundation and the National Education Association. 
And if you haven't clicked follow on the podcast, please stop and do that now. Rate and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. The Missouri model or Missouri approach refers to a system that prioritizes preventing young people from even being incarcerated. It also emphasizes rehabilitation and therapeutic approaches over punishment for people who are already in the carceral system. The Missouri model includes the following characteristics. One, small programs that keep people close to home. Two, humane environments that focus on physical and emotional safety. Three, group systems, which include daily group meetings and therapeutic interventions. Four, fully integrated treatment approaches. That includes trauma-informed practices that focus on social and emotional well-being, self-awareness, cognitive, behavioral, and family systems, and really a lot of the ideas of the whole child episode that we talked about earlier. Five, a healthy balance between treatment and education, creating really a one-room schoolhouse. Six, universal case management from start to finish. Seven, family and community engagement. The Missouri model is really the gold standard for many states as we think about the idea of transformation. As we think about the idea of transformation, the Missouri model is the gold standard for many states. It reminds me of something Brian Stevenson said. Each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. And Angela, you talk about in the book, we're we're jumping into the kind of where where do we go from here, but that's fine. We'll come back a little bit more. The Missouri model. So you you mentioned possibilities and cautions, really showing that we don't have a gold standard, but there are some things that we can learn, not only from other nations, but also within the United States. Yeah, within the United States, I'm really drawn to the Missouri model because it prioritizes social emotional learning and treatment. You know, children Mm. in juvenile justice facilities, children that do things that we call delinquent are often, most often, children who have suffered trauma. Mm. And so uh, helping them navigate that trauma, Mm -hmm. helping them learn to regulate themselves emotionally is a critical component, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I am very compelled by the Missouri model because it takes the child as a child and, and looks at what kind of treatment can we offer this child so that they make a different kind of choice in the future. And so putting treatment forward is is, is critical. I don't know enough about the kind of educational component of that. And so Mm. I think that that remains an important uh, component. And so I think that the way that we can improve both education and on the Missouri model even is kind of taking both of those things as simultaneously incredibly important. And Dr. James, so you lay out in the chapter actions we we can take at the federal, state, and local level. And you give us a lot of things to think about, especially in the policy space we'll be doing differently. What are some highlights in the chapter that you want listeners to to hear? 
Well, one of the things that I want listeners to hear is that this, the kind of circumstance that we find ourselves in, is historically built. We built this Mm. system. Mm. And so we can make a different choice, you know? So we talk about kids making different choices and, and desisting from delinquency. We, as a society, can desist from what I would call an incredibly destructive path. So we can make different choices for our children when they are in trouble and traumatized and and acting out in our schools and have needs that are unmet in our schools. We can make different choices when they have reached out to us through their behavior and, and have been perhaps arrested or something else. We can make different choices in terms of policy. Like what is our policy for dealing with children when their behavior tells us they need help? The dominant adult mindset, which has created the system, has to change as a starting point. Absolutely has to change as a starting point. We have to see, first of all, these children as our children. And we cannot rob the future in order to make ourselves feel, you know, nominally safer in the present. We can't rob the future for that because it always comes back to haunt us. Mm -hmm. We have evidence that, in fact, it doesn't make us safer. We have evidence that um, putting children in harm's way, because, you know, we, we, we do know that there are much too frequently abuses and harms that occur because of their incarceration. So we have to take that very, very seriously. And so, you know, our choice is to not harm children further um, and to, in fact, invest in their well-being have to be paramount. The first realization, I think, is recognizing that policy has brought us here, a range Mm. of policies, including zero tolerance, including high stakes testing, including Mm. all the things that make us see children who need help as a problem to be pushed to the side as opposed to a critical concern for us to grapple with in front of us. That's what I want everyone to see is that we've had a a legacy of policies and now we can create policies which are aligned with our current understanding, which are aligned with our understanding of how pivotal social and emotional and trauma-informed care, um, Mm -hmm. as well as education, our children deserve this. So it sounds like you're saying policy has has built this city. Policy can get us out of here. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we have to start now and it's not too late. Um, and that no, nowhere, and this is, you know, to go back to my little Malcolm example, mm-hmm. at no juncture is it too late to make these changes, to make these interventions. At every place in the pipeline, helping people to navigate social-emotional learning, and education to create their future selves is absolutely the right choice. And Malcolm is the young man you're talking about, the poet. Yes, my poet. Now, advocate (laughs) for young people who won't have the same experience that you did. So I know data is near and dear to your heart. We work together every day, Angela. Yes. What role does data play in data sharing specifically at the state level and even the local level? 
Well, you know, one of the things that I highlight in the chapter, and as you know, uh, is a big component, is we don't know things Mm. that we should be able to know, you know? And so our data systems don't talk to each other. Mm. How quickly do we learn of IEPs for children who are incarcerated? And then how soon do mental health clinicians learn and understand of educational struggles? Mm. How soon do educators learn of emotional concerns from mental health professionals? Right. So the fact that our data systems, that the way that we understand these young people don't speak to each other mm. should really trouble all of us. Uh, we need to be looking continuously individually and then step back to look collectively. How are we doing? And what is necessary? We have to use the data to look individually at that student. Mm -hmm. But we also need to be able to step back and say, okay, we have this facility and it has these characteristics. How do we understand these transitions? Where can we make improvements? And so what I see when I look at the data is that we really have an inability to make course corrections as a society, we don't have the ability to see where the fragile points in the system are. Mm-hmm. So I, I really cannot underscore enough that we need to know what are children presenting with, mm-hmm. what happens to them while they're there. Mm-hmm. We need to know how much schooling are they Losing mm-hmm. to carceral concerns, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't even know little things like that. How many days are lost to carceral concerns? And, and Angela, how much do we spend a day, uh, every day as a country? Which which you mentioned the chapter, oh. this figure. You did the math. I did the math, and now I've forgotten what I said. <laughs> I, th- I think you said it was $25 million, which I referenced. Thank you. $25 million a day we spend to keep children in harm's way often because, you know, there there are the lawsuits. There are the harms. There are the traumas that the children are experiencing in these facilities. So we spend that amount on keeping children contained. What would happen if we spent that amount on helping them become whole, mm-hmm. on helping them move forward, on giving them the tools to navigate this difficult period of their lives. Mm-hmm. What would happen if we spent that amount on education and tutoring, on specialized services? What would happen mm-hmm. for these kids if we really invested in them? I think they have the potential for high outcomes. So. Put on your, your sociology hat, well, which is always there. It's always there. <laughs> so I, I could say I was very naive. I had never been in a facility to the last oh. few years since working at our center at UCLA. Describe the court schools and or facilities so people can visualize in their mind, like, what does this look like? When you walk into a facility, what is striking is, you know, the, the architecture can be new and beautiful. And I've, I've walked in some that were. But you will see people in uniforms, children in uniforms, and they are being barked at, asked to walk in a straight line 
beautiful grounds, but don't step on the grass. <laughs> and I, I think to myself, this beautiful healing grass and this beautiful trees, and they're being told to walk in a straight line and mm. not step on the grass. Mm. So the small amount of times that they are out in nature, they are kind of being remanded from enjoying it, frankly. Mm-hmm. It's not filled with the kind of noises that you would hear in a normal school. Mm-hmm. You know, you normally hear people talking and laughing and sharing stories. There's very little of that. It is pretty quiet. There are certainly rays of light here and there, um, and there are absolutely children in that circumstance who are encouraged by some of the teachers in in the facilities or, Mm. you know, I don't want to mislead folks and and have them think that there are no good teachers in juvenile justice facility. There certainly are. But the circumstances themselves are pretty depressing. Uh, They are not where you or I would want our children to be educated. Mm -hmm. The teaching staff is totally outnumbered by the probation staff, the, mm. the kind of policing apparatus. And so when you walk in those facilities, it's immediately apparent that the priority is control and command and security, not teaching and not care. Mm. There's a report that Angela's the lead author on that we, we authored together called Road to Success Academies in Los Angeles County. We were both both in the court schools at different times, but I will never forget Angela being in the camps and well earlier in the day reading Magic School Bus to my then four year old in the morning mm-hmm. and then going to the camps and a brilliant young man, I believe he was sixteen, was watching the Magic School Bus video. And again, not to say this was every classroom, but the paradox in my mind was was just too right. much. And the guilt I felt from being there. But when we think about the education itself, because a lot of people don't think about that education exists in these often non-supportive spaces, bring us back to to that education link for us, Angela. The Road to Success Academies was a wonderful experience for me because, you know, it's such a promising model, actually, you know, so in many camps and halls, you'll enter and the work that children are working on is actually, as you say, these kind of videos or, or um, you know, Xerox papers clipped together, uh, worksheets that, that kids work on that are the opposite of what is exciting and encouraging and interesting and, you know, will be expected to kind of spark the kind of brilliance that we want to see, right? So Road to Success Academies, which kind of highlighted project-based learning. Mm -hmm. And instead of kind of making things very discreet, math and science, history and English, instead kind of integrated those subjects as people explored topics, right? Mm -hmm. Things topically, interdisciplinary. You know, so the classrooms were a bit different. They weren't, you know, as... um, sterile people were gathered around tables and a lot more interaction in that circumstance so it was a promising model i felt but of course you know as anything it's a the 
proof is always in the pudding, and there were you know many ways in which the carceral circumstances undid that. As I mentioned, mm-hmm. you know when when things shut down or when there's not enough probation officers, then people don't get brought to school, mm. <laughs> mm-hmm. so they don't get that wonderful project-based learning experience. They just get to stay in their cells. That's why I mentioned uh, how critical data is. We need to understand how often they're able to get this wonderful best practice. Right. 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 You know, it, it was, it's a move in the right direction. And I think the more we can uplift the children in these circumstances, it is possible to engage them in their own education. And in fact, it's critical to do so. I think we should be doing that. But at the same time, even as we look at the promise of that model and, and others like it, we we have to continue to advocate for children and think of how we can do better and how we must do better. So right. I think that was kind of the thing that I wanted folks to get from that report is that this is a promising model. We have to look at its promise. We also have to look at it with a critical eye and think of how we can improve on uh, the implementation of this model. Absolutely. And Angela, we've covered a lot in our conversation pretty quickly. (laughs) And this is something I ask every time of of the other contributing authors, but what's, what's the one thing you want folks to understand from our conversation today? What's the one thing you want them to take away? That transformation is always possible and that education is critical um, to facilitating individual and social transformation. We can do this. We can make different choices and our children can be nourished and should be nourished instead of punished and discarded. I am hopeful for all the little Malcolms and Marias um, in these facilities, I know that they have experienced circumstances that are difficult and make it difficult for them to learn. And yet I know they can. And I just want to be a part and our center wants to be a part of ensuring that they get the help that they need um, to make the leap and how critical it is for us as a society that they that they do so transformation is always possible it's always possible it's always possible incarceration is a byproduct of what happens when we don't invest in young people and their families through policies people and ultimately money when racism is ignored or is allowed to exist This is how we end up with the largest prison system in the world, where we lock up thousands of school-age kids every day and spend $25 million a day doing so. It also happens when educators suspend kids instead of getting to the root causes of why kids are acting out, or educators not taking the time to ask themselves whether they are actually triggering students' behaviors, like we discussed on Tyrone Howard's episode. That's how we stop the school-to-prison pipeline, fueled by the topics we've covered throughout this podcast. When we invest in stable housing, good jobs, healthy neighborhoods, clean air, and fair funding, we can eliminate the system that we've created, a system that we as adults have the power to get rid of, and we have to. 
This is Our Children Can't Wait. Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Bishop. Our Children Can't Wait is a podcast by the Center for the Transformation of Schools and the School of Education and Information Studies at UCLA. Support for today's show is provided by the Stewart Foundation and the National Education Association. Elizabeth Windham is the producer. Julia Windham is the associate producer. Geneva Sum is a creative director and senior producer is Jay Woodward. Our Children Can't Wait is the companion to the book of the same name, Our Children Can't Wait, available now on Teachers College Press and Amazon. Our Children Can't Wait is produced by Windhaven Productions and Blue Jay Atlantic.